The Academic Podcast Agency. Uh, my name is Bassam from Syria. Right now I'm here in Kios. The first we went to Turkey to Azmir and after five days staying in Azmir we left at four o'clock in the morning to Kios. In the boat we are 50. We stuck in the water for almost 16 hours. They call themselves commandos and like, they just damaged the port and they threw the diesel in the water so we cannot continue to grease uh, and they damaged the boat from one side they throw some of the batteries in the in the water the phone battery in the water so no one can call and ask for help I don't know they want us to die or they want us to go back to Turkey or I don't know how it's worked with them and we don't know who are they and nobody knows yeah because everyone gets scared the boat was full of water it's really hard for the children because it was the water mixed with diesels and it's really hard to breathe so that's why we are trying to show them to take first the children and the women because most of the men they are in the water and they are swimming there's no more chances because everything is damaged and we are in the middle of nowhere we don't know if someone will see us we don't know anything we are just stuck in the water You are listening to the testimony of Bassam Olrish and his journey by boat across the EU border from Turkish to Greek territory in 2015. Along with 120,000 other asylum seekers that year, Bassam landed on the island of Chios. And this month's episode of the Glass Bead Game is comprised from a number of different interviews recorded on this Greek island in the early months of 2016. Through these stories, we hope to better understand the wider meaning of migration and the actual lives involved in its complex social, political and moral repercussions. Who is afforded the freedom of movement from one country to another and under what circumstances? Should the citizens of one nation require a special permission to travel through the territories of another? And if so, on what grounds does someone qualify for such a permission? Or should national borders be understood as a malleable legal construct which allows for the physical possibility of global citizenship? A citizenship that potentially benefits economies, cultures and communities on an international scale. With both the media and political polarisation of these two perspectives and the evident tensions between state responsibility and international human rights, What should an individual's passport define about their ability to share in an increasingly interconnected global future? And whose moral and legal authority should we seek in order to separate the criminal from the vulnerable or identify a stranger as a friend? The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... The Glass Bead Game. The Glass Bead Game. My dear friends. Inform. Investigate. Abdicate.
As a father, I feel deeply moved by the sight of that young boy on a beach in Turkey. And that Britain is a moral nation, and we will fulfil our moral responsibilities. Time to wake up. Either we have massive orderly relocation, either we will have a repeat of what we've seen last year. Countries have to wake up. There is no other plan. The situation is very, very hectic. Uh, living conditions here are absolutely inhuman. Last night there were people sleeping outside in the mud without uh, not even a tent. Uh, the majority of the people here are from Syria and Iraq. Most of them are vulnerable women and children. And we also have many, many people who have disabilities. The legitimacy of an institution is related to its ability to control its borders. And, and I think in the popular imagination, the legitimacy of the European Union as an institution is challenged by this arrival. I'm Michael Collier, and I'm a reader in geography at the University of Sussex. Right now, there is an awful lot of media noise, and indeed a very real... Mm problem or crisis, as it's commonly termed, of people trying to get into the EU, primarily from Syria, um, you know, via mm. Turkey. Has the issue of, uh, of migration and, and refugees intensified over the last 10 years, particularly in Europe, or is it a global phenomenon? No, no, it hasn't even intensified in Europe that much. And when you look at, at absolute numbers of asylum claims, for example, which is one of the standard measures, um, it is larger in the last 12 months than it has been um, previously, but not that much larger than if you go back to the previous um, peak at the end of the 1990s, for example. And if you look at elsewhere in the world, um, again, in terms of, of absolute numbers, the, the European Union actually comes some way down the, the scale. The uh, Lebanon, for example, currently has 2 million refugees in a population of 6 million. The European Union is making a lot of fuss about one million refugees in a population of just over 500 million. What would you think is behind the gap then between the media excitement about the refugee situation and the reality of what you've just described, which is that there, there hasn't been this colossal change in, in numbers? People getting in boats, risking their lives in stormy seas, being rescued by other people, that's suddenly a much more exciting way of, of telling the story. So even though the numbers of those people have increased substantially in the last year, they are still very small in number compared to the numbers of people who arrive in European airports, for example. Border crossing is one of those things that it's, um, for most of the, the people who do it, it's a really dull experience. There's nothing particularly exciting or dramatic about it. When we think that 80 million people arrive in Heathrow Airport every year, most of them, that's a bit of a painful, boring wait. Um, and it's really not very photogenic. But um, there is a media focus on that story because 
it's a more exciting story. There's something dramatic about that. There is something that, that excites people, that people want to know about, and something that terrifies people. The spectre of families um, putting their lives at risk for something that they think is, is worth getting, reaching this, this destination. There's a powerful set of media ideas, a deeply tragic story that, that people want to read about putting yourself at risk to get across borders. That is not the experience of border crossing that most of us have most of the time. For Tula, a resident on the island of Chios, the first experience of meeting a refugee group was when a boat arrived outside of her hotel in the autumn of 2014. The first boat that it was landing here, it was 6.30, 7 in the morning. I went out, it was just when the sun rise. The locals were screaming, a boat is coming. It was end of September, so they were, they were, seems okay, but wet. And I said, do you need anything? Do you need anything? It was nobody. The people asked me to go to, of course, the toilet. I said, we can come to my hotel. And they wanted to plug their phones to speak with their, with their families. Uh, so they came here, I opened my house, I found whatever clothes I had for my son, for me, to change, because everybody was wet, it was a group with 25 people. Just like that started for me, the first landing here. And after that, of course, many <laughs> hundreds of landings, uh, yes. On the surface, what separates this border crossing from the thousands of people that pass through international airports each day is that individual physical safety has been jeopardized by the journey. So regardless of whether the numbers of people entering the EU are relatively small in the context of international migration, the crisis is perhaps best understood as the very real physical threat faced by those that are traveling. What Tula saw then, as she sees now, is a group of people in need of physical comfort, dry clothes and food. And this very human response is possibly what many people around the globe feel when presented with pictures of this type of border crossing on their TVs. My feelings was uh, really uh, strange because I, I cannot understand the, how they are living from their countries, they're coming here with uh, nothing, just only the hope. It's, it's difficult, but when you help the people after, the children especially, they're crying and they're shivering from cold, and after a while they be, become normal children again, smiling and hugging, and so it's, it's not only uh, sorry feelings, it's good feelings also after we help them. Is this the responsibility of the state? In, in any any given country, or is this the responsibility of individuals to feel empathy and to help with people coming into their country? Technically, it's a responsibility of the state. If the state has, has signed certain international agreements which commit the state institutions to protecting individuals who need this protection, then there is a responsibility of state institutions to do that. Clearly, there's a, there's a big grey area there around who needs protection and, and exactly what that protection should consist of. The obligations that state institutions owe to individuals seeking protection have been more and more limited progressively. And the people that they owe those obligations to have been more and more strictly defined. What is migration and is it important to you? 
Personally, I think it's a pain in the arse. I think it's causing, it's costing the country an absolute fortune. To me, I just think it's an inconvenience. I understand if they're legitimate, but if they're not, then I don't agree with it. Migration? I thought migration meant um, leaving the country. What does it mean for me? It means people looking for a better future, and trying to improve their uh, lives and their families. So going to places where there's work and money. I do worry about the influx of people coming to this country when there isn't the structure that can support it. You know what I mean? And there isn't a lot of um, the, you know, our own kind of people being looked after with the health care, housing and job opportunities. You know, it'd be nice to see the British people having to be looked after first and then helping others after that if we could. And our people suffering at the hands of it. Sometimes it seems as what's happening. Hi there, I've got an appointment with Rachel Robinson. It is, yes. Thank you. So apart from the possible threat to personal safety, what else differs from the arrival of boats on the shorelines of Chios with the wider concept of general migration? You may be tempted to answer that the difference lies in the legality of the traveller, that those travelling from outside the EU without the necessary paperwork are simply without the permission to cross that border by sea, plane or any other means. But in fact, the 1951 Refugee Convention, a document that is legally binding to the UK as well as to the rest of Europe, states that anyone persecuted for race, religion, political opinion or membership of a particular social group may seek asylum regardless of how they manage to flee such persecution. In order to better understand what this actually means, I visited the offices of Liberty and talked to Migration Policy Officer Rachel Robinson. Following the Second World War, really the, the response of, of European countries to the horrors of persecution which happened in Nazi Germany and elsewhere in Europe was to say never again, you know, the Refugee Convention and the European Convention on Human Rights uh, were both documents that grew out of, uh, of that and, and were a response essentially to the, to the horrors of that, of that conflict. I suppose what I'm interested in is that if Europe has signed up to these human rights acts. Mm. Legally, we are tied mm. to these ideas, these principles. Yeah. And now we see with the European uh, approach to the refugee crisis... Um, a real um, willingness of individual countries to, to turn their backs on, on these principles, on these critical principles. So we see that in, in the extent to which the, the countries at the borders of Europe are being um, required, essentially, to take on um, disproportionate responsibility and responsibility which is not um, accordant with their capacity. We are going to clean this beach today. It's uh, full of uh, vests and uh, plastic balloons that the refugees are taking with them and all the garbage that the refugees are leaving back when uh, they go. Uh, of course, it's important to, uh, to, to keep the beach clean and not to have environmental catastrophe. Yeah, uh, It's very important. In the summertime, I remember, before the volunteers come and clean the beaches, we had always problem uh, in the beach. It was full of vests. Almost 90% they're fake. Yeah. Um, they're selling them fake. Wear it and you are in the water in uh, approximately one minute. You are in the bottom of the water if you don't know how to swim. 
that in Athens uh, there is also many people. All the hotspots are full. Um, the government took the decision to delay the departure of the refugees from the island, from Chios. So uh, they leave every day 50 people, not more. So at the island at this moment we have 4,000 people in all the camps and they cannot go um, to Athens. You know, while, in the meanwhile, if we have many landings, we will add more people in the island. And this is difficult because it's so many to feed them every day. The kitchen's doing great job, of course, but uh, they need to, the government have to take a position. The position that the government subsequently took has been greatly informed by a summit held at the beginning of March 2016. A summit that attempted to reconcile the migration policy of the EU with its closest non-EU neighbours in Turkey. What were the European leaders meeting to discuss during that summit? The main aim of the summit, and it's significant that this was the European Union and Turkey, the, the main aim was to try to convince Turkey to support the European Union in its aims of preventing people reaching the territory of the European Union. Um, there's, there's a long history behind this type of legislation because when people reach the territory of the state, they can claim asylum there. And that unleashes a range of obligations that states that are signatories of the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. They have to consider that claim. And, and that can be quite time-consuming. But if individuals can be prevented from reaching the territory of a particular state, then that obligation isn't unleashed. If they are 20 yards away from the territory, they can't claim asylum. Um, so this process of sort of extraterritorializing, of keeping people away from the territory, uh, is underlying a lot of, of migration policy developments from Monday, migrants arriving on the Greek islands are supposed to be sent back to Turkey if they haven't applied for asylum or their claims have been rejected. The first migrants have been deported from Greece to Turkey under a new EU deal to reduce the flow of people to Europe. Rachel Robinson again. With the recent Turkey deal, we see an extension of this incredibly irresponsible approach. Essentially, what the EU is attempting to do is, is use Turkey as a, a refugee a containment area um, to prevent people from reaching Europe. This isn't an attempt to really avoid responsibility, not a kind of collaborative approach, which is thinking about um, the basic rights and freedoms of, of the human beings involved in this process. And there are huge problems with Turkey and Turkey's approach to, to refugees and refugee protection. Protection. For a start, it actually doesn't recognise individuals from outside of Europe as refugees per se, so that it doesn't actually have the infrastructure in place to formally recognise people from, for example, Syria um, as refugees in, in its country. Fundamentally, Turkey is a country which has a very worrying record on, on human rights and refugee protection. Reports from international human rights organisations which talk about the extent to which Turkey is sending people back to Syria and other countries where their lives are at risk. In blatant contravention of the, the, the duty of non-refoulement, um, this requirement that you don't send people back to countries where they'll face um, persecution. Even more shockingly um, than this are reports from human rights organisations working in the region that refugees 
refugees attempting to cross into Turkey have actually been shot, including children. Um, and, and this is the country we're, as a, as a kind of collection of nations, essentially trusting with or, or shifting responsibility to for, um, for uh, undertaking our obligations um, to protect refugees and asylum seekers. And it's, it, is, it is actually a really disgraceful um, situation that we've, that we've reached. So the question is, what is migration? What does it mean? And is it important to you? It's people moving to somewhere for a more prosperous reasoning. So like people looking for better careers, better work, um, just a better lifestyle, moving away from some sort of you know, criminal background or a violent background, being like war or something like that. What does migration mean? And is it important to you? Yes, it's very important to me. Um, it means that all our schools are now becoming overcrowded. Um, and it, it's a breaking point, I believe. And uh, something has to be done about it. In 2011, in Syria, I got caught by government and I went to jail for one year. One year and three months. Actually, you don't see anyone. The room it was one meter only. So it's only standing, sleeping, standing, everything is standing. Food they give only twice a day and sometimes they forget it. It's a bread or potato and this is what they bring. And sometimes water every two days. Washroom you go only one a day. Yeah, and always, I mean, they ask you to go out for some questioning and beating. Because when they keep asking questions, they ask me a question I never heard about it. Uh, some question like in 2004, 2005, you've been against the government. In 2005, I was 15 years, 14 years old. I don't know. I was thinking only to play football. Uh, they don't let you see them. Our eyes is totally covered, so we don't see them. I mean, no choice. So you say, yes, I did this. Okay. When you say no, they don't write anything. They just take the answer off, yes. They just need to give you a reason that they arrest you. That's that's why. I just pay money. I pay them seven million, around two hundred thousand dollar, to go out. Yeah, we sold our house. And then they just pay the money, and I'm out after like a month. So I mean, yeah, we are trying to to handle it as much as we can. So many people are missing. So many people they die. I mean, they don't. They cannot survive. How I survive? I don't know. But I survive it. Bassam, who you heard at the beginning of this episode, had left Syria and passed through Chios on his way to Dresden in Germany, where he feels that the anti-refugee sentiment makes it unsafe for him to live. We came out from Syria to, to have a safe place to stay, but is not safe at all. Always there is trouble with some people, anti-refugee, they're always having problem. I guess there's so many group against the refugee, like, Begidas and MPD and there is so many group and it's not really it's not safe to be there because like two months back I got attacked by one guy there. Presently he has returned to the island of Chios to help with the boats as they arrive from Turkey. A journey that he understands firsthand to be a necessary attempt at finding a life free from fear, incarceration and harassment. It's not safe. Every Monday they have demonstration against refugee. There is a group is called Pegida. Most of them they are Russian. They've been refugee in, in Germany. 
before. I asked them many times, like, why you hate refugee? Yeah, refugee, they, they get money without anything. Okay, what other things bother you? A refugee, they have all a smartphone. Okay. How would you define in, in this context integration? Or is that a massive, that's, massive question? That's a massive question and, and a very political question. Because um, surely that is problematic. I mean, if yeah. people, we use these words like yeah. integration and people nod as if, you know, everybody's on the same yeah. page. Yeah. But surely they mean very different things. Yeah. So integration, for some people, it means behaving like the people who live in this country in as many respects as possible. So there's a level of cultural assimilation involved in that. Certainly within academia, that's been rejected for a very long time. But within certain sections of the press, that kind of understanding of integration is still fairly significant. That integration means not wearing certain clothing or not behaving in certain ways. You have to behave like people who live here if you are integrated, and that's one of the, the sort of popular measures of integration. I think the classic text on this is Nevgak Solguk, States and Strangers, in 95, that made the point that in any question of identity, individual identity, community identity, um, the, the focus is initially on what, on what you're not, on defining yourself against something. So identity is oppositional in that sense. And the, the point that Solguk makes in that book is that refugees serve that purpose for the state. So refugees are by definition not citizens. They are outside of the state. And they're therefore important in highlighting things that, that citizens are, the, the rights they have, the how they relate to the, the state institutions. The refugee doesn't relate in those ways. And the refugee is uh, an ideological outsider because they help people to understand the privileges that they have as citizens. So it's one of those, you know, if the refugee didn't exist, you'd have to invent it kind of line, because they are essential to, to understanding how citizens relate to, to states. And I think that's a very helpful explanation in, in starting to explain the popular reaction. I mean, clearly, when groups like Pegida go and beat up refugees... They don't have that sort of ideological oppositional identity in mind. But there is a sense in which they recognise the, the refugee as someone who is other, who is different, who is clearly not a citizen. And in that sort of political activism, they don't want them to become a citizen because that will then start to change who the citizen is. And, and for many people, that is alarming. Yeah, now we are patrolling and uh, we stop in the beaches with binoculars and we see cross if we see any boat and uh, we have in our cars uh, clothes, uh, food and water, snacks and uh, in case that we have a landing we will be there. Um, provide and help uh, the refugees. Uh... For Tula, the arrival of refugees outside of her hotel is clearly not a political crisis, but rather a humanitarian one. 
However, the degree to which these two concepts are considered to be synonymous with each other often confuses the media and the public as we try to apply a meaningful narrative to the desperate movement of people across the Mediterranean. Paul Statham runs the Migration Centre at the University of Sussex, which, amongst other things, produces work exploring the gap between migration policy and migration reality. I've been working more on the public debate side and how politics distorts or basically shifts attention around and what impact that can have and how it changes how people potentially view things but also can change how policy can be driven simply by politics and then there's another world going on of the reality of the problem and and that the, whether the two worlds ever join together or not is it's quite difficult. For me it's very difficult because of my age I believe. Most of the landings are uh, are in the night, but it can happen many times during the day, but it can be all day. The extent to which political agendas and media coverage are able to dictate the morality of good or bad migration cannot be underestimated. And in this regard, it is surely significant that volunteers such as Tula are interested in helping people rather than nationalities and that the principle of human rights are not exclusive in their protection of those considered vulnerable. All the organisations that are faced with the context of a surge of interest, lots of good intentions floating around, but then there's the question of whether good intentions lead to good outcomes, because you actually need knowledge of what's going on to, you know, address some of these things. So, you know, I mean, why would Syrian refugees be more deserving than refugees from anywhere else, when the whole principle of refugees is supposed to be people seeking sanctuary wherever they come from? It, you know, never came with some kind of national or ethnic marker, but what happens is a media explosion. Everybody wants to know the answer, and it should, for the media, of course, it should be a quick answer and a simple one. You know, very a good example would be the, the change or transformation that took place after the photograph of the little boy washed up and there are actually 3,000 children who've washed up in a similar kind of period. But the impact of the photograph and then the um, impact, for example, on politicians being forced to put things in place to try and address uh, refugee issues. Then on the other hand, you've got people who've been working on these things, saying the same things for years and years and, and being basically unheard. The weather is good, but... We stop, that's why we will stop now and we'll hear in the beach if there is any boats coming. The, the purpose of, of refugee protection is because it's recognised that some states um, don't offer that protection. Um, the reason why international protection is needed is because of a failure of national protection. The line in the 1951 Refugee Convention that states have to be unwilling or unable to protect individuals who are suffering from persecution of various kinds. And, and that's key, that this is a failure of state protection. So there's an implicit criticism within the refugee system that a state who offers asylum, who recognises a refugee coming from another state, is implicitly criticising that state because within the legislation it says that that state is unable or unwilling to protect those individuals. And in the case of Syria, 
there are clearly large numbers of Syrian citizens that the state is unable or unwilling to protect and actively persecuting in this case. My mother and sister and my father, they are in Jordan. After I been to jail and I went out, they all travel. They are scared. So they are all in Jordan. It's around 7 million left in Syria. In 2011, it was 27 million. Latest uh, update from UNICEF, it was 600,000 being killed in Syria in this war. There is 2 million are missing in jail. Nobody know where are they or it's a huge number. So right now there is no no people I mean left in Syria. Syria is for the government right now only. There's there's a broader question about lack of control that all of those eighty million people who arrive in Heathrow will be processed through this ordered system of, of border control and they'll have their passports checked and and that's somehow the state institutions, the border control, the, the UK state in the, the person of the person who is checking your, your passport, they are in charge and they are letting in people that they have examined on an individual basis, even if only for a few seconds, um, and that is a decision of the state to allow that person in. So when people arrive outside of those channels, outside of those authorised channels. It suggests something about the capacity of the state, of the, the European Union, of whatever um, state institutions are, are responsible for letting those people in, that that capacity has somehow been eroded, that they're not in control of that process. 22 of October, they told me, hi, we are on the bus to Macedonia, how are you? Uh, I tell them, what is the situation here? And I asked them, how are you? Hi, we are all fine. We are in Austria now. And hey, we are alive. It was very difficult. We are all very exhausted. Email allows Fatula to keep in touch with many of the refugees she has helped over the last few months. One such family, which passed through Chios, found asylum in Austria before moving on to Germany. Uh, at 9 of February... He sent me again message. Hello, how are you? I've learned a little bit German. I can make conversations now. And I met new people. I met a German girl and she's really beautiful. And we love each other. Also, I go now to a pharmacy here to learn more about the pharmacy work in Germany and to learn more German. My sister goes now to school and everything is fine for now. I just wanted to say hello and check on you how everything is going. And how is your little boy? I hope he's doing great. And then, at 9 of February, may God bless you all and protect you. People like you is the reason why many other people in need still have faith in humanity. Yeah, I will never forget also this group. What is your thoughts of how um, ideas about migration um, in the EU or universally will play out in the next 10, 20, you know, even 50 years? Um, and I think that the recent developments encourage more territorialism and what we've seen over the last, the last year, two years, maybe even longer, um, is a, um, a gradual retreat into particular territorial um, zones within the EU. I think people are realising that 
to an extent it's not something which can be stopped. The, the numbers that we're trying to stop are relatively small um, in absolute terms. In, in relative terms to the numbers of people who come every day into the, the European Union, um, they're tiny and a fraction of a percentage. We need to realise that this isn't as big an issue as, as it's been made out to be. Um, and it is increasingly difficult to, um, to stop people. You know, once people have got into boats, it's too late. Without you know, harming their human rights in unacceptable ways, you can't stop them. The refugees are not going to stop easily to coming. We, everybody knows that, so it might be, take years. So now in this point, I'm worried more what is happening in the borders than here. Here, the refugees say that they find like a paradise. In a, when they are leaving from here to go to pass the Domeni and to go the borders, there is the difficult, I believe. The only three percent of the world's population are international migrants. It is a an exceptional behaviour. The the European Union experience of migration within the EU, which it's important to highlight, is not migration in EU terms, the largest effective no-borders zone in the world, in history. And that experience underlines what we know and repeat a lot within those of us who work on migration studies, that typically people don't want to leave. People like being at home. Uh, even if I don't have in the hotel, I will have them in my life. Because uh, like we in our team, we say that we are going to be here uh, until the last refugee will leave from the island. So this is a big commitment, I know, but um, I, I have, uh, everybody support us. So yeah, I, all the volunteers that are coming here, they, they know, they see what we do. So they will, I believe they will continue coming. The development of walls and new fences can only be understood as a performative action. This is something that governments are doing not in an attempt to control, because they know that's not possible, but in an attempt to demonstrate that they are in control, to, to shore up this idea of the legitimacy of the state, that effectively um, Slovenia closing its borders, Austria talking about building a wall, this isn't because they think a wall will stop people coming, it's because they think a wall will demonstrate, largely to Austrian citizens, that the government is doing something to control the borders. And as people from outside of Europe gain the ability to know about things, to travel more easily, this sort of situation is going to become more significant. I would hope that it's not portrayed in the ways that it has been at certain times over the last year or so as something drastically concerning other than from a humanitarian perspective. It's like I say to everybody, if you were in my place, see the refugees every day, you will do the same. Imagine how many volunteers are coming from all over the world, living their jobs, living their lives, and coming to help us and help the refugees. So I cannot close my eyes in this problem. I don't know actually how was my life before. Now uh, it's completely changed and... Uh, I like that uh, we help so many people. Simple things. I'm like just a girl from a village and just want to help people. That's, that's all, actually.
In an age when the global movement of people is more possible than it has ever been, the image of the successful plane boarding business entrepreneur remains an attractive icon of modern life. Whilst desperate groups of people on boats arriving without documentation worry both governments and citizens, despite the uncontested fact that their numbers are dwarfed by those holding the correct passport to travel. One easy explanation for the difference between these two groups is the wealth of the individual. But in reality, refugees such as Bassam have often paid large sums of money to escape their circumstances. And in such cases, individuals are clearly not entering the EU because they are poor, but rather that the journey itself has bankrupted them, and that despite this, it is still the best option. Popular political responses to migration are often polarised. However, it is worth remembering that any country that protects its citizens with high walls, fences and borders are also choosing who is exempt from such controls, suggesting that borders in themselves are also capable of creating a globalised elite, a small group of special tourists who can travel wherever they wish, whenever they like. This idea is rarely presented as something that people should worry about. And depending on whether you believe that migration in and of itself is dangerous, perhaps it is not. All contributors, academic profiles and relevant publications can be found listed on the Glassbeak Game website at www.theglassbeakgame.co.uk And if you'd like to hear more episodes as and when they are released, why not subscribe for free at the top of the site? The subscribe option will also unlock additional Beat Game extras, such as extended interviews and other audio treats. Next month's episode is an inquiry into the modern-day US civil rights movement and the meaning of racial equality. Your presenter and director has been Will Hood, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Beat Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production.